0: Welcome to all of you who are um, at home and uh, have not yet shoveled and all of that. And welcome to those joining us at um, Vernon Hills and at Crossroads in Highland Park. So, um, am I allowed to keep going? It does not look like we have, there we go. Okay. So, um, you may have noticed that over the last couple of years, I have not challenged you to the 10 plus 10 paradigm that I used to use. 10 plus 10 was sort of shorthand for you should spend 10 minutes a day reading the Bible and 10 minutes a day in prayer. And uh, I never actually thought that was a wonderful idea, but uh, I thought it was more than many of you were doing. And I would always qualify it in saying, by he- by all means, if you're doing more than that, don't back up. But if you're not doing that, that would be a good place to start. And the idea was it would sort of catch, if I could get you to start reading God's Word, that it would pull you along. So C.S. Lewis, the, the famous uh, 20th century apologist, atheist, became, you know, major Christian uh, writer and thinker. Lewis often said that the Bible is like a caged lion, and the way you defend a caged lion is you open the cage, right? The lion can defend itself. So just get people reading the Bible what the Bible will take care of itself. So I often said that. But a couple years ago, I stopped saying that. Uh, now, for the record, it, it worked. I mean, I, I had a conversation in this room a few years ago with some people, uh, their uh, adult son, single adult son, young guy in his probably late 20s, had quit his, just quit his corporate job, and uh, had taken a uh, position, he was going to go help open a hospital in uh, a relatively uh, sketchy part of Africa. And, uh, and they were a little concerned about this. They were proud of him for what he was doing, but they were a little bit nervous about it. And we were talking about it, and then at one point the, the, the dad, the father said to me, he goes, you know, this is your fault. And I said, uh, well... I mean, I think this is a good thing. Like, I'm excited that he's going to do this, so I'm not really looking to, you know, assign blame. But how exactly is it my fault? Just He goes, well, everything changed when he started doing this 10 plus 10. He says that really changed his life. And I said, well, I actually find that shocking. Uh, not that reading the Bible would change your life, I believe that, but that anybody who listens and does anything that I suggest, I find that shocking. So anyway, uh. It did work. It caught on for some people. But I stopped saying it because it felt a little disingenuous. And it felt disingenuous because uh, I was finding the need in the last few years to spend more time in the Bible. Now, just full disclosure, 10 plus 10 was not my metric like this is my day job. Like I, I do get paid to spend more time reading the Bible and and praying and other things. So, it was not the it was not my personal bar, but I was finding the need to expand my own devotional practices because uh, while I don't struggle with anger or anxiety or depression, and I sort of single those out because I there's a lot. I mean, I think we know there's a lot of anger out there. We see that. And the last statistics that I saw in terms of uh, anxiety and depression is that one in six adults in the United States now are on some sort of medication, helping them manage anxiety and depression. And and please do not hear me challenge that or suggest that if you're on that, you should get off. That's not what I'm saying at all. Just noting that there's a lot of anger, anxiety, and depression. Those are not my issues, but increasingly, I found myself dealing with despair, like Oh, my goodness, where is this headed? And I I found that I needed to proactively spend more time being shaped by the hope of the gospel and God's love and by good news than I was by the sort of nonstop bad news that I was hearing. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't have to help you populate the list of the things that are going wrong Whatever they are, you know, inflation and unemployment, or Taiwan, or or Ukraine, or or uh, ethnic unrest and other things, uh, police interaction. There's enough. We know that. You know that stuff. Uh, But you may have noticed that I am increasingly arguing that there's a lot of good things happening that people aren't paying any attention to. So a couple Fridays ago in the Friday update, I linked to an article by David Brooks. I'm not an unqualified David Brooks fan. Uh, I don't think everything in that article is right, but he talked about all the things that are going right in America. And I just find those are not the things that we hear. And so I needed to hear more about the things that are working, and I needed more time in in reflection to so that I was more shaped by the hope of the gospel. God's love, right, the fact that this ends well. I needed to be more consciously working to be shaped by that than I was being shaped by uh, whatever news I was reading. And so um, it just felt a little bit disingenuous to say to you 10 plus 10 when I'm thinking 10 is not anywhere close to being long enough. So all of that to say, uh, I have had to work harder on this in the past. And so I stopped saying 10 plus 10. Uh, but I, I do want to say I think we've got to be more conscious about managing our thoughts uh, than maybe we had to be uh, in the past. So I would suggest that if, if we're living in a stream and the stream has been uh, level two uh, rapids in the past, so not that hard, you can navigate it in a kayak, there's just, the, it's the volume and velocity of culture more than, I think, any particular thing that I just have a hard time dealing with. And so you put, you know, another five million gallons of water through a little, uh, a little creek, uh, the current picks up. And so you need, you need more skills, you need more strength, you need more energy, you need more, uh, you need more of something in order to be able to navigate uh, the volume and velocity of culture and so uh, I increased my uh, my efforts on that front and in our passage today Jesus uh, addresses some of that so we're in this is the fourth week in this series of John John's the last gospel written much later uh, than the other than the first three and he uh, in the first week, and this is all in the last week of Christ's life, in the first week of this series, I talked about Les Mis and grace and humility, and that was John 12. Christ, We looked ahead at Christ's death because he had been saying at that point he was going to die. They didn't hear it, but he's, he's been saying this for a while. Then John 13, the second week, the first half of that, we were looking at this call to serve, that if you have power and we have power, we need to be using our power for the benefit of others. That's what that's what we get entrusted with power to do. So we looked at Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, which was a shocking thing in that moment. And then last week we were looking at this new command that he gives to us, and it is a command to love one another, and it's new because it's loving at a different level. Uh, he's sort of increased the, the robustness of that love. So now we turn to John chapter 14, which is actually sort of a... It's a difficult moment. So Jesus has again, so again, he's just said again, he's going to die. And it's as if the disciples have now heard this. He's been saying it and now suddenly they think, oh, it's actually about to happen. And this is very bad news for them. Uh, and it, they thought, you know, oh, wow, I've, you know, I've got this, this hot internship. Uh, I've, I've hooked my wagon to the fastest horse. You know, I, I'm in on the ground floor of this, of this new IPO, and, and Jesus is going to take over power, and, and I'm going to be right there, and I'm going to have power, and the glory days are ahead. That's what, that's what they thought they were signing up for. And now they're hearing, wait, you're going to die like, that is bad news. So that's where we pick up John chapter 14, uh, beginning with verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So, of course, this is what you say to people whose hearts are troubled, right? I mean, uh, and their hearts are troubled because, as I just said, they have now suddenly uh, realized, oh, he's gonna die. And I think there's two things that ought to really get our attention here. One of them is if you were there, <laughs> like if you were one of the one of the, the twelve, there's eleven left in the room at this point because Judas has gotten up to go betray Jesus, but if you're one of the eleven you look around this room and you say, yeah we're in a lot of trouble here because uh, there's no there's no obvious number 2 that's going to step in. As a matter of fact, you're looking around, you're going, "Yeah, there's no 3s here. Like maybe we got a 4, but uh there's there's nobody there's no obvious person." I mean, some football games happening this afternoon, right? And one of the things you talk about is what happens if the quarterback goes down. Who's got a bench? Like who who can navigate this? If the leader goes down, there are organizations, football teams, there are companies where there's lots of people ready to step in. The number 1 goes down, there's lots of there's lots of number ones in waiting, there's lots of number twos, there's lots of people and you go, "Oh, okay, yeah, the obvious person to step up is this person, this man, this woman, they'll no, we'll be fine." But then there's organizations and you look around and you go, "Oh, yeah. No. Like we don't have that." I'm I'm reading lights out it's a um, it's a, an account of GE after Jack Welch steps out and appoints uh, Jeff Immelt to be the CEO. And uh, and it does not go well if you know what what goes on at GE. Then for the next uh, uh, whatever ten years. And reading this book, it just makes it really obvious how one how hard it is to pick to do succession planning, how hard it is to get a number two and to be confident that that person is going to be able to step in. But it's also, it makes it obvious how hard it is for organizations to, to, to last. I mean, to keep going. So if, if Jesus did nothing else, I mean, he deserves a place uh, in, in the in the elite of the elite for launching the church, which is now the oldest the largest the most geographically dispersed the most ethnically diverse organization in history right and and it's it's 2000 years in rolling forward and most organizations do not last they don't last 100 years let alone 2000 like blockbuster Xerox, Compaq, Kodak. I mean, these are organizations you think, oh, they're st- these are blue chip stocks. They're going to go on forever. And then they don't because it's really hard to keep organizations going. Jesus gets an organization going and he does it with this gaggle of misfits and also rans and, and uh, number fours and number fives. And now, in 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 fairness to the disciples and in fairness to the to the full weight of what happens, the Holy Spirit is gonna come <laughs> and and we're gonna see that that Peter who's you know wilting in front of uh, in front of this fourteen-year-old girl when she says, weren't you with him? And he doesn't have the courage to stand up, Peter is gonna is gonna grow dramatically. And James, uh, Jesus' brother, half-brother, is gonna step in and be a, a leader in the bishop of the church in, in uh, Jerusalem. And then you've got uh, Paul is going to come along. And Paul's a big dog leader. And he's going to, there, there will be leaders that will that will step up and lead and, and, and provide direction for the church. So we'll see that. But at this moment, Jesus doesn't start with, with people that look like that. And he launches the church. So the point to all this is to say, if, if, if you are there, and Jesus says, I'm not going to be here much longer because I'm, I'm about to be killed. You look around the room and you go, <laughs> okay, this is a really, this is bad. Like, we're not going to make it a week, let alone move forward. The second thing to note here is that if somebody ought to be troubled, you would think it would be Jesus. <laughs> like like he's, about, he's about to be killed. And yet... He's the one that is sort of the non-anxious voice. He's the one that's saying, hey, here's what's going to happen and, and uh, here's how you ought to navigate this. Now, uh, we will see Jesus get, get uh, upended when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So, so later in the week, uh, we're going to see that he's praying in the garden and, it, and he's, he's full of anguish. But I don't believe... If you look at this, that Jesus is scared at this point to die. I think he's just aware that he is about to on the cross bear the punishment, the wrath of God poured out on him for my sin and yours. And that is an entirely different thing than dying. That the 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 union that he has enjoyed, the perfect friendship he has had with the with the Father and the Holy Spirit is about to be breached. As uh, we're told in Second Corinthians, uh, God makes him who you knew no sin to become sin, and then uh, he is punished for our sin. And so I think that's what really, uh, I think that's what really undoes, uh, really undoes Jesus. I don't think he's scared to die, but I think that there are a lot of people today that are scared to die, and um, perhaps. Uh, Perhaps that's you. And so I want to note, I'm not certain that it's entirely fair to say that we ought to have the kind of mindset that the Apostle Paul has. So in his letter to Philippians, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm anxious to depart. Like, I want to die. I want to get to heaven. Uh, Paul is likely talking about himself in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, uh, but he gets called up into the celestial heaven. He gets called up into the third heaven, and he sees things there that he can't write about, he can't describe. Uh, I think he's talking about himself. I think Paul has a vision of heaven. He knows what's coming, and so he's like, yeah, no, I can't, I can't wait to get there. Uh, that, that's not us, but, but we ought to be moving in that direction. Now, let me, let me just put on hold here for a second, I think uh, I think we ought to think very differently about our own lives and our and the end of our life, based on our age, especially based on those that are depending upon us. <laughs> right? so if you're if if you got young kids, I mean, it's just an entirely different equation as you think through the possibility of your own death. But I'll say again, I've told this story before, but my dad did just a great, did a just a great favor to us. So my dad, uh uh had a great fourth quarter uh, I, the, the kid all of us kids would say we sort of didn't recognize him uh, in his 60s and 70s because he became I think he came to faith at that point and he became a very kind uh, person that that's not who we grew up with and we were often sort of shocked like who are you and what did you do with our dad Uh but he grew a lot. Uh, he started to serve in ways that were really shocking to us, and uh, he he just uh, you know he's got into Bible studies. He was he was just involved at the church. He's just it was a very different fourth quarter for him. And then uh, when he turned eighty, we got the call, and I've said you know you should expect a call. That's usually how it happens these days. The phone rings, and suddenly everything changes. And I was, in one sense, we were prepared, Sherry and I, because we were living, we live away from our parents. We thought, phone's gonna ring, and we're gonna hear cancer, we're gonna hear heart attack, we're gonna hear something. And uh, my dad said, Yes, when my mom's on the phone. She goes, You know, are, are, do you have a few minutes to talk? You know, I wanna get your dad on the other line, we got something to tell you. And I'm like, Oh, I mean, like right away, this is the call, here it comes. And he had been diagnosed with leukemia. Um, okay, okay. But I'm like, okay, so I I can envision what the next two years look like. And he says, they tell me I have just a couple of weeks to live. And now suddenly it's like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? Like, that isn't how this happens. And he, he had said, he had been saying to us that, uh, you know, when he's in his 70s, it was always, you know, 70's the new 50, and, you know, oh, we're doing all this stuff, and da, 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 da. And then he turned 80, and he says, Yeah, 80 is 80. Well, 80 is 80 when you have leukemia. I mean, the the reason he was so exhausted is because he had leukemia. He just didn't understand it. So uh, it had gone quite a ways. And so he ends up, um, he's going to end up living almost a year after that. But we immediately go down. You know, I'm the oldest of five. In in the next few days, we all uh, make the truck uh, outside of Little Rock And my dad's comment is, look, there's no bad ending for me, right? There's no bad ending for me. I've lived to be 80. I've had a great life. You kids are doing well. This is, if I live, I get, I like my life. I love your mom. I get to keep doing these things. That's a win. If I die, I go to be with Jesus. That's better, so, uh, and then he looked at me like, that's better, right? I go, yes, Dad, that's better. That's better. So he said, this is, you know, you do not need to worry about me. He says, we will navigate this however we navigate it. I'm not looking for heroic measures. I'll, I'll you know, I'm, I'm, but I don't want this to be about me. I've had a great life. And that was very liberating for the rest of us to then you know, navigate the next, uh, the next months of his life. So I, I want to say, um, I do think that, that as Christians, that ought to be uh, our attitude. <laughs> and to the extent that, that there's a lot of fear in your life about dying, I want to say you're not looking at what Jesus is saying and what he is promising. And we, we need to understand, here he is. Uh, this is the next thing he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why not? Believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, uh, that you also may be where I am. Jesus does not see death as the end. And as a matter of fact, uh, his view of what is coming is that it is far better. This is the land of the dying. We go to the land of the living. We go to a place where God's will is done. We go to a place where there is no sin, where there is no brokenness, where we're not selfish, where we're not hurting people we love. We go to a place that works. And, uh, and Jesus is clear, saying, look, what's coming is better. Eternity changes everything I've got this. Don't worry about it. Don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So, uh, look, if this is true, and I believe that it is, if this is true, then we need to live in light of eternity. And this life, this brief life that we have, is uh, just a a brief moment before the main event. And we need to be shaped by the main event. (laughs) And we need to live today in light of eternity. And we need to follow Christ's example and not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up our treasures in heaven where they don't get taken away. We need to live today in light of eternity. So, I think part of the problem that we have, and some of this will get addressed a little bit more as we get later in John. Part of the problem we have is there's just these crazy, nonsensical, bizarre, foolish, idiotic ideas out there about what's coming next. And it's 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 so incoherent for the most part that it's hard to, to even sort of distill them out into say there's this stream, and there's this stream, and there's this stream. So you've got all the techno-optimists, you've got all the, you know, sort of utopians, like we're going to fix this, we're going we're gonna to fix the world, we're going to fix people, and soon, uh, the day of singularity is coming, and we're going to be able to download our soul and our personality and our memory onto a hard drive, and we'll live forever, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I read about that again this week. The day of singularity, now that AI is accelerating, they go, somebody's announced, the day of singularity where humankind and computers merge together in this one little tornado of computers keep getting smarter and smarter. They design computers that are smarter and smarter, which design computers that are smarter and smarter. And then pretty soon, we're living forever because our entire consciousness has been downloaded uh, onto a computer, which to me sounds... Horrible, but whatever. There's that stream of thought. Then there's this, there's this, this uh, pseudo-Christian Gnostic nonsense that we live on as spirits. It's a mystical, magical world. We're, we're, we're here. We're an angel. We're a butterfly. We're whatever. It, 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 I just will say again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a resurrection of his body. He was. 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of what is to come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ with a new body is what we are promised. So, and it's not just us, it's a whole new creation that is that is no longer under the weight of sin. But there's this vaporous kind of. And the biggest, one of the biggest questions I get asked about heaven is. How is this not going to be boring? Like, it sounds boring. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but it sounds pretty boring to me. Like, how long can I do that? I have no desire to lay around on a cloud playing a harp. I mean, this sounds like a bad 10 minutes, let alone eternity. And so we've got this nonsense, and then you've got another, what is growing today is just this complete I get to decide what my eternity is gonna be, and I just I'm declaring that it's gonna be this, it's gonna be that, I'm picking and choosing for a little bit of, again, you know, a little bit of uh, Buddhism and a little bit of Christianity, and a little bit of Ayn Rand, a little bit of capitalism, a little bit of Oprah, and a little bit of this, and I'm gonna do this and it's gonna be this way. And there's this seemingly this belief that I just get to declare reality and it will be real, and reality is gonna to adapt to whatever I say it is. And you go. Like, sort of doesn't work that way, but um, I think part of the reason that a lot of Christians uh, are living with some degree of fear, now let me just say one other thing here. My dad, who's interacting with the oncologist, saying, look, I'm not scared to die. Um, I'm not excited about the moment. Like, can we talk about how I'm going to die? I'm a little worried about being out of breath at that moment. Like that. And, and the doctor says, no, 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 no. That's not. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not expecting you to be excited about death. Death is an enemy. Death is ugly. Right? Death is, death is, is a result of sin. But Jesus defeated death. And he will destroy death. And so It has lost its sting, right? It has lost its punch. It's lost its power. And so I think as Christians, we need to be shaped by what Jesus is saying here. Don't be troubled by by the fact that I'm going to die. Don't be troubled by the fact that things are going wrong, right? You are part of a much bigger story, and I've got this. I've got it under control. I'm working out the plan. I'm going ahead. I will be back. That is what Jesus is saying. I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you, and I will come back for you and take you there. And then he says in verse four, "You know the way." Uh, and Thomas, gotta love Thomas. He doesn't. You never go along just to get along. Thomas says, "It's really. I think it's. It's sort of a laugh line." Thomas says, "Yeah, we got no idea where you're going. Like, how in the world do you think we're going to find it?" Like, we got we got nothing here, Jesus. Uh, and Jesus answered and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A very famous statement at the time, in part because Jesus is leveraging this this I am claim. This is the name of God, Exodus chapter three. Moses, what is your name? Tell him I am sent you. I will be who I will be, the Tetragrammaton. And then throughout John, Jesus is is in, in somewhat subtle, but not very subtle ways, he is saying, he's claiming that title over and over. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am. He's claiming to be God. Remember, Jesus does not claim to be a teacher who should be followed. He claims to be God who should be worshipped. He's doing it again here. And then this passage, of course, gets a lot of ink today, a lot of attention today because it's, it's so exclusive, which is exactly counter to, to the reputation we say that we enjoy right now, which is that everything goes. Of course, um, people who say that you can't make uh, exclusive claims are making an exclusive claim uh, and telling you that you can't make one. Uh, the, the question about Jesus' exclusive claim is really whether it's true or not. Uh, whether, whether we like it or not, Uh, that God has designed a a path forward the way he's designed it. The question is whether it's true. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And it's this self-referential statement. Not just I am the way, but he's saying I am the destination. Not just I'm teaching you truth, but I am the personification of truth. Right? He's he's making this big claim. Then moving on, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, uh, you do know him and you have seen him. And now it's Philip's turn. Again, remember we got this group of guys not really clueing in. Uh, and in their defense, the resurrection hasn't happened. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. <laughs> and Jesus says, really, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, you're still not getting it. Like I have given sight to the blind, I've given hearing to the deaf, I have, I have made the sick well, I have raised the dead, I have fed people with no food, I have calmed the storm, right, I have, I have won every debate I've been in, right, I've taught with authority, I've modeled love, <laughs> I've done all this stuff, and you're still saying show us God, and then we'll be satisfied. Now, Again, in defense of the disciples, the Jews were the last people on the planet who would have uh, been able to make sense of the fact that Jesus was God, because their number one creed there, the Shema, Deuteronomy six, you know, "Hero Lord" or "Hero Israel," the Lord our God is. One God. There's one God. That's what they declare over and over every day. There's one God. They live in a polytheistic world. Everybody's got gods. They're considered atheists. That's what the Jews were called back then. They're considered atheists because they don't believe in all the gods. They just believe in one God. And so they believe in one God, and God is God, and he's in heaven, and he's holy, and you can't get close to him. And they believe that, and then they start to believe and God is right here next to me. <laughs> right? And they're like, ah, that doesn't work. Uh, and they don't actually work out, you know, the triune nature of God. I mean, it, they, they just sort of declare it. They don't, they don't the, it, the mysteries are beyond us, and we're not going to work it out later. And the councils, when we start to define the Trinity and try and explain how to talk about it, we're not figuring it out either. But they just say, there's one God, he's in heaven, and Jesus is God also. And I don't. I don't know. I know that what I'm saying doesn't seem to make any sense. But that's what they eventually will come to believe. <clears throat> Verse 10. Uh, don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing. <clears throat> excuse me. Who is doing his work? Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence. Of the works themselves. So again, the miracles in the first part of John, I'm talking about this a lot in the morning devotions. The first part of John is full of all these miracles where Jesus is demonstrating who he is. And the miracles are obviously all good things and they, they, they go to the benefit of the people who are being cured. But the big reason for the miracles, as a matter of fact, the word that's used there is signs. We, we translate it miracles, but they're signs to Jesus. He's got power over sickness. He's got power over death. He's got power over evil. He's got power over all these things. And so he says, believe. uh, And if you don't believe everything I've been telling you, believe on the basis of the signs that I have been doing. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater than these uh, because I am going to be with the Father. And I don't think this means greater miracles. I just think, you know, when Jesus leaves, there's a hundred people following, and now the church is, uh, has dramatically expanded. Uh, verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name. So, um, look, there's so much here, and and I'm not even certain that the end, that this is where this passage ought to end. We, You know, the, the chapters and verses are all, they come hundreds of years later, and you uh, and the guy who sets him up was, did it while riding on a horseback, and we're pretty sure a few, a few times the horse stumbled and his pen went in the wrong place because you're like, that is not where this ought to end. So we'll get next week um, this, this whole idea where he's going to tell us uh, that if, if we love God, we'll keep his commandments. And I think there's a lot that goes into that, and it ties into the Holy Spirit. For now, simply uh, out of time, I'll return to my opening comment, and that is, That your heart should not be troubled. And if your heart is troubled, then Jesus said, believe in God and believe in me. I've got this. I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. I've got this. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. I would say, what you may need, what I have found I needed, is more time reflecting on the love of God, the gospel of God, the goodness of God, more time reading, more time reflecting, more awareness of the volume and velocity of the culture that is coming at me. And I need to have an inner world that's stronger than the outer world. And as the outer world has gotten stronger, I have to raise my game. And so I think that's what we're getting from Jesus here in John 14. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, we do want um, to be shaped by you, and to be shaped by your goodness, and to be shaped by the gospel, and to be shaped by hope, and to be shaped by your promises, and not to to live in reaction to all the the noise, the news, the social media, all the all the anger, all the all the polarization. We want to be shaped by you and by your promises and to reflect that to others. Guide us to that end, in Christ's name, amen.